Well, we come back to the Gospel of Mark this morning is uh, part two for the day. And next week will be the third part, which we'll have Lord's Table next week because where we are in Mark next week, it particularly will apply to the Lord's Table. That's why we're not doing it today. So uh, if you remember right, um, Jesus was feeding the 5,000, which was actually probably 15,000, 20,000 when you add the children and the parents that were involved in it there. It was quite a few more than that. And um, he miraculously fed them. The disciples were there. They saw the miracle. And then, of course, there were 12 baskets left over for the 12 disciples, which must have really spoken to them that this was well-timed as Jesus fed perhaps as many people uh, they say, as you could get into three cruise ships to give you an idea how many people that would likely be. So it had an impact on the 12, I believe. And um, today, we're going to come to the next step in that. What happens next? The, the 12 and the feeding of the 5,000 was a public miracle, the largest miracle Jesus did in Galilee at the end, essentially, of his Galilean ministry there. And that particular miracle is mentioned in all four Gospels, all four Gospels. It's the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels except for the resurrection. Those two miracles are mentioned in all four. So it has a very special place, and uh, we talked about that last week, and if you missed it, you can see it on the live stream. But today, today, our next section now comes with a very interesting singular miracle just for just for the 12, and it's a sea story, which, of course, I could identify just a little bit with. But if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you just to open your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6, and we'll read that text starting in verse 45. Verse 45, just a few verses there. Just follow along quietly with me. If you want to stand, you could. Let's do that as we read the Word of God this morning for a moment. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45 down to, the, to verse 52. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. They were astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. You can be seated, please. This is where we come to. This is not the only thing about this miracle. This miracle is mentioned in three of the four Gospels, not all four, but three in Matthew and, of course, Mark, and then, of course, in John it's mentioned there. And they all add a few more details to it, and I'll give you some of those details as we move along through this section here. 
And we have basically four steps, or if you want to say four pictures here that we'll look at as we, as we begin to look at this particular miracle. Um, really, it's kind of a further application of the feeding of the 5,000. That's why I see it, because what happens there, the feeding of the 5,000, is a very public miracle with thousands and thousands of people. Many people from all of northern Galilee are seeing that miracle, and it's totally an amazing thing to them. And they all participate in it because they eat the, they eat the bread and they eat the fish. And the 12 are seeing it, and they didn't know how to provide, but God told them what to do, Jesus told them what to do, and they saw the miracle of the multiplication of the, the bread and the, the fish. But now this is a very private miracle, right on the heels of the other miracle. Immediately, it's just to the twelve. And it's mentioned in three as the Gospels, which, I, as I said, is, probably means that this is fairly significant there. Fairly significant. So let's look at the first picture that we really see there, and that's Christ leaves to go and pray. Verse 44, excuse me, 45 and 46. And he starts out with that word that's immediately, right? Remember that word? That's a word that, that Mark just likes to use so much. It's, it's kind of like a newspaper word. It kind of moves things along fast. And um, he says he ordered the people to get into the boat and so forth. So you see Jesus doing three things here in this little section here. The first thing he did is he ordered the disciples to go back and get in the boat. Um, the boat is there. They came by boat. And by the way, they found a boat uh, near Capernaum that uh, some maybe 10 or 15 years ago or maybe 20 years ago that was in the mud right near the shore and they, they excavated the mud around it. And it's a boat from the first century and they believe it could be Peter's boat. I've seen the boat. The boat is probably about as long as maybe from here to uh, the middle window there. And it's they've got the some of the the ribs from the boat and they've had a lot of put a lot of metal in it to give you the basic shape of it but the basic boat is there it's an open boat didn't have a motor in it it was either sails or, row, or rowing with oars and um, that's what they generally fished in if you go there today sometimes you can see boats like that actually still there today so he says immediately there, he ordered them back into the boat. The boat, that's a particular boat. Probably the boat that was probably perhaps Peter's. Not just a boat. And, and Jesus, as he does this, he orders them to do this. He says, go and get in the boat. He made them get into the boat. He wanted them to leave right away. There's no coaxing along here as you see this. And to go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. Bethsaida was a, a place along the northern coast of um, Galilee. And if they were over on the eastern side, then they would start to go to where the home of Peter was in Capernaum. And on the way, there was probably this little village. And there was sometimes a thought there's a second Bethsaida, but this one was probably somewhere in between. And it was a village, it was a fish place because the word means house of fish. Not to be, con not to be confused with um, these fish places you see that you buy fish at, you know. It was, it was a place where there was a lot of fishing business going on and that was a big thing. They even exported fish from Galilee. That's how big of a business it was. But he orders them to get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. He didn't want to go with them. I wonder if they wondered why. We don't know for sure. 
but we know that he was going there to pray. Second thing you see in here is he also orders the crowds to leave. There's a lot of people there, and it's late in the day. It's probably dusk or around that time. He tells the crowds to leave, and, and basically he's doing the same thing at the same time, it implies, that he ordered the disciples to leave while he himself was sending the crowds away. And keep in mind, there's a lot of people there. This is a massive miracle, miracle that has more people involved than any of the others by far. Really, his last major miracle there, as we said before, in Galilee, as he kind of sends them off. It'll be something that they would remember, hopefully. So he sends the crowds away. They had to find their way. They, I don't think there was many of them in boats. It was pretty much all walking and running, and so they started to head back. Maybe they would sleep. It was, it was springtime because we saw there was grass on the ground. And um, they probably... Uh, went a certain distance, and then they slept. It's about five, six miles, maybe, total, of, to where they were going. Some of them went to different villages. Some were close, some were far, and so forth. But they were leaving. Jesus didn't have anything more to say to them. The healings were all done, and the teaching was done, and uh, certainly they were full of food by then. Couldn't, they couldn't argue that they were hungry. And then thirdly, it does say here that also he went to the mountain to pray. He left for the mountain to pray after bidding them farewell. Very interesting. And I think the reason that he, showed, that he sent those people off is because when we read in John chapter 6, it indicates that some of them were starting to say, let's make him, you know, let's make him our leader Let's crown him the Messiah and let's, uh, let's see he's, all the miracles he's done. Let's see if he can overthrow the Romans. So that's why he sent them off and that's why he went to the mountain to get away from them. So he sends them off and he goes off to the mountain probably to kind of a quiet place where they wouldn't find him so he could pray up there. And they couldn't take him by force as it says in John 6, 14. So he heads up to the mountain and he prays and um, that's good because there's something very important coming up in this miracle that we'll see here. Um, very interesting. Three times in the Gospels, Jesus goes to the mountain to pray. And um, the first time was, of course, when he chose the twelve. He went up to the mountain and he prayed there and uh, spent a long time in prayer and came down and then chose the twelve. Second time was right here in this passage. And then the third time is when he goes before the crucifixion the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he prays there also. So these mountains really on the northern side of Galilee, if you've ever been there, you know that they're rather tall cliffs there and some of them border towards the east. Some of them border towards the north. If you go north, you can go on up to the headwaters of the Jordan River there. It's a very beautiful area. Got a chance to go there last time we were there. And... Um, the mountains are many there, but they're kind of desolate, and we don't know exactly where it was. It doesn't matter that he was up there basically praying and alone with God during the night, probably fairly late now, as he goes up to the mountain by himself. The question comes up, what was he praying for? What was he praying for? We could conjecture on that just a little bit. doesn't exactly tell us, but uh, he's probably praying for the multitude that he'd fed. They'd already left, and... Uh, 
He was concerned about them. It's likely that he was praying for them. They wanted bread, but he wanted them to have the bread of eternal life, which we know we'll find more out about next week. It was getting close to the time of Passover, and it was about one year before his death on the cross, and so it's very possible he was praying about the Passover with those thoughts in mind. It was probably a solemn thing as he thought about that just a little bit. And then, of course, I think he would also logically be praying for his disciples, the twelve, that is. They had just returned, remember, from a preaching mission, and um, they reported back to him, and they needed discipling and mentoring, and they saw that actually with the, I think, the the feeding of the 5,000, that was really a part of that. But he now sends them away because something is going to happen that's very significant. And he sent them out in the boat, the boat, the boat that he came over with them in, and now they're going back without him. And it's nighttime, it's nighttime. Christ's prayers and prayer for Peter reveals just a little bit of the feeling here in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Peter was in charge of them now. We see Peter more in charge now in this particular situation. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. Satan did test Peter, and um, it was difficult for him. Just a reminder that Satan probably has influence in our lives more than we realize sometimes. It's good to pray for our children. It's good to pray for those in authority. It's good to pray for our church leaders because sometimes we are under the gun and don't even know it. He prayed for their protection, really, there. John 17, it says, verse 15, I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. In Christ, what's called his high priestly prayer there. Praise for protection. And it's good to us, good for us to be that and keep that in mind. It also says that he prays for us there in John 17, actually, and that is uh, before he went to the cross. And it says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, that was just to the disciples, in other words, but for those, that's us, also who believe in me through their word. In other words, those people who come to Christ and are saved through the teaching of the apostles down through the centuries, he's praying for us there too. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? It's really a comforting thought. He prays for us in our difficulty. I'm sure you've all felt difficulty at times and you feel a little bit alone. Where's God? How come the heavens seem like they're made of brass? But they're not. He's praying for us. He intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit is involved in that too. So we should remember to pray. That's a lesson to us to remember to pray, isn't it? Jesus went up there. He, he modeled it for us those three times as well as others. We come to the second scene now, the second scene in verses 47 through 48. And in this particular scene, he's walking on the sea, walking on the water here. It says, it was evening and the boat was out in the water there in the middle of the sea and was alone on the land. 
About 3 a.m. is um, the fourth watch of the night that's mentioned here also. And that says that they were straining on the oars. The wind had picked up. And, and evidently Jesus sent them out knowing that it would be windy. I'm pretty sure Jesus knows when the weather changes because he's in charge of the weather, isn't he? Pretty much in charge of everything. Why did he send them out there into this windy night, this stormy night? He says that uh, he was alone on the land. And the interesting thing is, is he saw them. It's nighttime, and they're out in the lake, probably a few miles away, maybe four or five, or even six miles from there. I think it would be kind of hard to see in the middle of night, don't you? He didn't have binoculars or anything like that. But he has a seeing eye that sees all things. He knows all things. And so by his miraculous ability, he was able to see what was going and know what was going on there in the dark of the night, three to four miles away. Maybe there was a moonlit night. We don't know that. And maybe he could see because of that. But I, I do know that God knows all things. And they went out. And it says the, the winds were contrary there. Verse 48 says... Um, seeing them, what he saw was them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. So the first thing that that tells you, the weather was bad enough, the storm was bad enough, that they had to take the sails down. And so now they're using this, their oars, they're rowing away. And um, it's kind of fun to row a boat. This wasn't so fun, of course. They probably had enough oars for most of them to do the rowing, or at least take turns. And the wind was against them. So they were going into the wind and, uh, to get to the shore, but the wind was blowing them away from the shore out to sea, essentially, there. Keep in mind, I think, as you think of that particular thought there, the winds were contrary. Some translation says that they were against them. The winds are against them. Same idea. They're going against the wind. Keep in mind that Jesus sent him right out into a headwind. He sent him right out there into a headwind. They probably got a little ways and suddenly it picked up and there they were. He does not always give his servants fair winds and following seas. Common term mariners use, fair winds and following seas. He doesn't always give us those kinds of conditions in life. It's not always a smooth path. It's not always an easy course for us to steer. He also allows us gales and wind and rain and storm and big waves. And life is not always smooth sailing. Not always smooth sailing, is it here? On the sea, you can expect the winds to be contrary to the direction you're going three out of four times. I mean... There's four points on the compass. If you're going north and it's coming at you, it's contrary. If you turn the other direction to go west, then uh, it's still going to be contrary when you go the other direction, sort of. And um, basically, most of the time, they're always going to be contrary <laughs> unless you're going the exact course you want to go. Especially in those kind of boats because they depended on the sails to get you there. And then remember also that Paul was shipwrecked a bunch of times. Three times, it says, Paul was shipwrecked. It was pretty common among the Jews to have problems with the, with the sea. They, they didn't do very well at sea. We have the story of Jonah, you know. Uh, and um, 
and going overboard in the storm and uh, the sailors were really fearful and they threw him overboard. And of course, uh, the shipwreck that, that, that the Apostle Paul was on, which I've had the privilege of being there and swimming in the waters of Malta where that actually happened. But there were two other shipwrecks that Paul was in too. So uh, it wasn't easy. They were going contrary there. But the thing that's good to keep in mind here is even though they were rowing off their oars, that must have been hard. That must have been hard to go against the wind because it says it was here. And it was hard enough that they couldn't make any headway against it. But we know that the eye of the Lord is watching. The eye of the Lord is watching. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. And he may strongly support those, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That's a comforting verse. It kind of follows the idea that Jesus was watching them. Proverbs, excuse me, Proverbs 16, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching evil and good. There's nothing that God doesn't see. His eyes are everywhere. See, he knew exactly what was going on with them. But when we're in the storm, do we feel that way? Do we feel like he's watching us? He knows what's going on? Or do we need to inform him? Well, we are to pray. and We are to humbly come before him, of course. So, uh, something happens here. It says, uh, verse 48, seeing the straining in the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night, which is about 3 a.m. And then it says, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Wow, that's interesting. Came to them walking on the sea. Uh, what did that look like? Well, I can imagine that Jesus went down there. We don't know how fast he got down the mountain. Uh, he can go as fast as he wants to. We don't have to question that. But there was some distance to go. He went out in the water. And uh, I imagine there he comes walking on the water. And every step he takes, uh, he does not get wet. Uh, the water's just calm right under his feet as if he's walking on hard pavement. And, and, and there he is suddenly walking on the sea, coming to them. That was a pretty miraculous thing there. And it says that he intended to pass by them. To pass by them. Uh, a couple of thoughts. Some people think that this may actually uh, refer back in kind of a veiled way to Moses and God when God passed by Moses in Exodus 33, I think it is. I don't think so. I don't think it's the proper application here, but we'll get back to something similar to that in a moment. But it did appear that he they was going to pass by them. Why did he pass by? Well, maybe, uh, maybe he wanted them to recognize him. Obviously, that would have been part of it. Maybe he wanted them to invite him on board the boat and when he passed by, or would they just fear that he was some kind of apparition there that they saw? Um, or likely he wanted them to... Um, know that he was aware of where they were because he could see with them, he could see them in the darkness of the night through his eyes and, and to trust him. He wanted them to trust him, wanted them to invite him into the boat, which of course they did. Being at sea is a 
kind of a scary thing sometimes in a storm. I've had that opportunity myself in a very dangerous time. In my early years in the Coast Guard, I was a junior engineer on board a Coast Guard ship. We were at anchor for 10 months of the year in one spot and watching about five miles off the ocean, five miles off Cape Flattery. And, and um, I hadn't been there very long. I was pretty, pretty new in the military at that time, just a year or so. And um, it wasn't very long, and just a few weeks aboard that ship, I think it was probably the first time I was really out there, um, the storm picked up, and we were at anchor. We were at anchor with a great big mushroom anchor and huge big lengths of chain. Ship was 130, 130 feet long, very seaworthy, very seaworthy. Um, storm kicked up. It's 8 o'clock. We were down watching a movie on the mess deck, and suddenly there was a sound like... Uh, like a freight train going across our bow because uh, we parted the anchor chain and suddenly we were drifting and sounded general quarters. Everybody went to their position. Mine was in the engine room with the other guys. I was junior on the totem pole, wasn't an officer or anything yet. So um, the captain is calling for the main engines. Light off the engines. We need to get underway so we don't go against the rocks. So we were being blown towards the, uh, towards not Cape Flattery, but just down the coast a little ways there, and there was a, there was a reef there. And the ship was called the Umatilla Reef Lightship because we were guarding that reef from ships going astray on it. And we couldn't get the engine started. We tried and tried and tried, and we ran out of starting air. It started with engine, with uh, compressed air. And here I am. I'm a new guy. I'm sitting over the corner. I don't have anything to do because everybody else is three or four other guys trying to get things going, and they're kind of in panic mode. And... Um, I, I'm thinking to myself, man, I haven't been in this military, this service very long, even not even hardly a year, and looks like we might sink. I mean, that's a bad deal, you know. <laughs> Could that really be true? And so I just suggested to the guy, and I was a Christian then, and I said, guys, we need to, we need to pray, and they kind of just looked at me. And so I was just praying over there. I didn't have anything to do, and eventually we found the problem and got the engine started and steamed back on station. But it was a frightening thing. Now that kind of weather out there probably was a little bit heavier than what we see here, but their boat here was a lot smaller too. A lot smaller. And it can be a frightening thing when you know things are out of control. So Christ now, thirdly, thirdly, he teaches them about courage just a little bit here in verse 49 and 50. Verses 49 and 50, but when they saw him walking on the water, they supposed that it was a ghost. Um, the Greek word there is a word that we get the word phantom from, phantisma. And there was a lot of um, there was a lot of belief among the people in those days, mythical kinds of things about things that show up in the night and um, ghosts, if you will, and so forth. And they saw, they saw him coming, and you don't see people walking on water, so it must have been a ghost. It must have been some kind of a phantom there. They supposed it was a ghost there. And, and then that says that they, they cried out. This is where they really, it's just a really piercing cry that they had here. And they were terrified. Idea means to stir up or to be agitated. They were really agitated by this. It was a it was a scary moment, as it was for the sailors that were in the boat where Jonah was, as it was for Paul when he was on the ship that, that uh, sank, 
three of them. I'm sure it was a very difficult time. But it says, and there's, there's uh, John Mark's favorite word, Mark the author of the gospel here, but immediately, immediately he says this, he spoke to them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. They were still safe. They were still safe. And he's comforting them there as he does us when we call out to him. Psalm 139 verses 8 through 10 says, If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, Thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. It's comforting to know that God is there wherever we are. Psalm 107 is a wonderful passage there, too. I, I read it at Galen's memorial a week or so ago, and uh, he was a sailor also in the Navy. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business in great waters, have seen the works of the Lord. And his wonders in the deep, for he spoke and raised up the stormy winds, which lifted up the waves of the sea, and they rose up to the heavens, and they went down to the depths, and they melt, so their soul melted away in their misery. They're kind of the same situation in a way. And they reeled, and they staggered like a drunken man, and they were at their wit's end, and they cried to the Lord. By the way, the word LORD is in all caps there. Just keep that in mind. Yahweh. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress, and He caused the storms to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad. And they were quiet, because it was quiet. And He guided them to their desired haven. A wonderful passage many mariners have taken comfort in. So he says, take courage, and um, Jesus says, it is I, it is I, there, it is I. Now I want you to just pause for a moment, the recording that's going through your mind about what's taking place here, and I want to go back to the Old Testament, draw a little comparison here. Do you remember when Moses um, met up with God at the burning bush? And he was out in the desert and he was going along and he saw this bush that burned but did not burn up. It didn't, uh, it didn't disappear. It just looked like it was burning. So he went over there. He said, let's go over there and see what this is all about. So they went over there to see this burning bush. And as he got close to him, God was speaking through the burning bush. Do you remember that story? So um, as he spoke to God, as God spoke to him, um, God um, tells him he wants him to do this particular ministry or mission and to go back to the people and so forth. And um, then Moses says, well, who shall I say is sending me? And he doesn't know. Who shall I say is sending me? And, and, and God basically says, I am who I am. Well, Moses thought that's not a name. But who shall I send? I am who I am. He had no name. All the other gods, it's interesting, all the other gods of history have names, pretty much. They all have names, clear names. And not only that, they also have a story about them. Now, I'm talking about the gods of the pagan world and any god that's not the god of uh, the Bible. 
those gods also have a story to tell about where they came from, you know, where they came from, where they, were, where they started out, where they were created, except the God of the Bible. He has no name and no place he came from because he is eternal. He is eternal. Now when God says, I am who I am, this, uh, this is, comes to a very complicated um, kind of discussion about uh, translation and this word particular here in the letters in it are called the tetragrammaton. You don't have to write that down. Some of you might know a little bit about that. If you've had any Greek or Hebrew, you probably know a little bit about it, theology. It's a very complicated subject. But God is saying, I am who I am. But now as, as, as Jesus is speaking and saying, take courage, it is I, in Greek, the same term, I am who I am, is ego, I, me. Ego, I, I, me, I exist. And that's the same phrase Jesus uses right here. He's using the same phrase that you would see in the Old Testament there. In other words, he was saying to them, I am the great I am. I am the God that appeared to Moses. This is a seminal moment in the disciples' life. I believe that they got that. In the midst of all of that, I believe that they got that I am who I am. And remember Jesus said in the Gospel of John, you remember his I am statements? There are seven I am statements, very well known in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. That's going to be coming up next week. I am the light of the world. That's two chapters later. I am the gate, John chapter seven, 10, verse 7. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. So Jesus is putting kind of a permanent stamp for the disciples on who he was. It goes far beyond the feeding of the, of the 5,000. So this is very clear that he is deity here. They seem to struggle with that just a little bit, and they're up and down on things, but we're not that way, are we? <laughs> we're not that way. Sure we are. We tend to struggle with things back and forth and up and down and, and sometimes I wonder if God exists maybe. But So uh, that's what's happening there. Now, by the way, Jesus is coming up to the boat here. He's not in the boat yet in verse 51. He's in the boat, but there's a passage that's missing here that you haven't heard about. Do you know what that passage is? It's in the other Gospels. It's about, it's about Peter walking on the water. It's not in Matthew. Let me read it for you. Matthew 14. Uh, it's in Matthew. I mean, it's not in uh, Mark. In Matthew 14, 28, it says, Peter said to him, to, that's to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he began to be frightened and he, he began to sink and he cried to the Lord, Lord, save me. And even Matthew uses the word immediately here. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? By the way, little faith is the most common term Jesus used to refer to the 12. 
the most common term, yo ye of little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, why do you think that story is not in Mark? It's in the others. Well, guess who was the one who informed Mark what to write? Peter. Does that tell you anything? Does that tell you anything? I think Peter was by now and later in life, uh, you know, as he's informing Mark about what to write from the stories, and, and um, while Mark's the author, actual author in some sense, so is Peter. Peter has been humbled. He doesn't want to bring this story up again because he really failed there. Not unlike us, though. Not unlike us. And will that be in your story? I don't know. I hope not. But, uh, but it's okay if it is because we know who is the winner in the end. So now we come to the fourth and last movement of this little story here in verse 51. Then he got into the boat with them. So you have more of a complete picture because I've added these other verses in that don't appear in Mark to kind of flesh out the whole picture. He got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. The wind stopped. Jesus is in the boat. Now we have God in the boat. God in the boat. That's an interesting thought. John 6.20 adds and says, He said to them, It is I. Of course, that's the ego I me. That's the same as we see that Moses is saying in the Old Testament. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So uh, John adds that little post, and it's kind of a two-part miracle here, you know, taking place. If you add that one in there, Jesus walks on the water, but he also, uh, he also brings the boat immediately to the land. It appears that suddenly the boat just, poof, it was over at the land. It's over at the shore, and there's no more problems with the waves and so forth. And the, and the, the wind had stopped, the storm had stopped, and all of that. Pretty amazing God can do that. And by the way, I, I, I don't want to just, I, I don't want to emphasize myself, but I did pray in that situation. I don't know that anybody else prayed while the captain was calling for the engines to get started. But for some reason, one of the guys found the problem. The problem was a secured fuel valve in, under the deck plates. The Lord decided to remind him where it was and that caused the engine to start and has to go. But God works as a real-life story, kind of like that. God brought the rescuing angel here. By the way, did you know that the most, commonly, most common term called the Coast Guard rescue crews when they rescue people at sea is they call them angels? And you can see why. That's kind of what we have going on here. They, they were just so thankful that God had taken care of things, and here he was. Matthew 33 says... Uh, uh, those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Certainly God's son. A declaration of deity here, without the death in the dark article. They didn't say he was the um, son of God here, but they're making progress in the right direction. And, and a lot feel like this was really the seminal moment in the disciples' life when they were turning uh, from this particular situation, this miracle that was just for them. 
they, they would be different after this and they would see Je Jesus in a, certainly much more of a divine light there. Amazing, amazing story. Verse 52, and um, suddenly they were at the land. But verse 52 is the clincher, really. And re it's really based on the, the earlier part of the verse. It says they were utterly, utterly astonished that the wind stopped and that there they were with Jesus in the boat and so forth, and there they were at the land. It would imply that, too, from um, John 6, John chapter 6, verse 20. But in verse 52, it says, For they had not gained insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's talking about what it was like beforehand. I believe that's what's taking place there. And they didn't, they didn't get it, but now they're starting to get it. They're starting to get it. They had not gained an insight earlier. They saw all the loaves, they saw the thousands of people fed, and all the stuff that came back, and the 12 baskets full, and they themselves ate, and everybody was full, but they didn't get the idea. And I don't think the crowd got the idea either. They were only thinking food. Free food, free food, let's make Jesus king. It's a welfare state. Now, that'd be great. Sit back and relax. Their hearts were hardened. Hard hearts. Unless the Lord opens the heart, we're desperately lost. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, and the Holy Spirit has to bring us to life. And we see something like that happening here. Many people recognize Jesus as a great teacher, a great religious figure, a great person of history, but not as the Son of God. And that's what needed to happen right here. Not really. He is God. And He alone can save you in your distress. If you know about Jesus and you're here because you respect Him and you've read about Him and you're interested in Him, but you're, you don't see Him as the Son of God, then you are lost. You are lost. Your heart is hardened. You say, well, how can I change that if God is the one who calls me? And he says, I called you. You didn't come to me. That's what it says in John. On your own, I'm the one that called you. But yet he commands us to pray. And I don't know how that all works out, except that we do both. And we come to believe. My heart was once hardened when I was a young man, and then I came to Christ, and the Lord just woke me up at the right time, I guess is the best way I can say it. I've never really doubted him since, but many do. He's the Son of God. And so Jesus would have to deal with this coming up. A couple of life-saving lessons, I would say, very simple ones that come from this story. Life-saving lessons. Number one, Jesus is praying for us in the storm. Good one to remember. There's a storm going on in your life, around your house, around yourself, around your emotions, around your thoughts, around your health around your work, um, around your family, whatever. He's praying for you. His eyes are on you and so forth. He's praying for you. Our hearts may be hardened, but Jesus loves you. He wants you to follow him. Number two, Jesus sometimes asks us to go against the wind. That's a very important lesson to remember. Don't be surprised when things don't go well because too many people come to Christ and say, now everything's going to be rosy. Not. Not, no. There's, there's not going to be fair winds and following seas the whole way. Sometimes there are, yes. 
But sometimes you go against the gale. Sometimes you go against the wind and the, and the seas are in your face and you have the big rollers and so forth. Maybe difficult, but God is and can meet and he is the great I am. Jesus is. And he asks us to go against the wind, so don't be surprised if he asks you to go against the wind. It may be for your betterment. And then thirdly and lastly, Jesus is with us in the storm and we are safe because God is in the boat. I like that one. God is in the boat. God is in the boat. God's everywhere, of course. But there's a very real sense in which he's in the boat in these kinds of situations. Even when we don't know it, and even when we don't know it, he is watching and he can see and he's ready to rescue us. Does that mean that we might not die? That doesn't exactly mean that either because we know that many Christians have given their lives and they die at sea. They die in sinking ships and crashing airplanes and so forth. But do you see him more than a provider, more than someone who takes care of finances and takes care of the food and you're kind of looking for the health and the wealth gospel kind of idea? But uh, what about worship? What about who he is? And the mission that he has called us to, to share that gospel, that's now what's going to happen as the disciples are beginning to fall into that particular pattern more and more to share the gospel with others, how we should share the gospel. How we should share the gospel that Christ died for our sins once and all, once for all, according to the scriptures, and that he was raised. So we have the death and the burial and the resurrection and to put our faith in him as John 3 says God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life wonderful thing to know that it's it's just that simple and that all of our sins all of our sins are dealt with the moment we believe and we don't have to stand in judgment because of those sins because Jesus was judged will judge for them on the cross Romans Eight tells us that. Wonderful thought. It's a wonderful thing to know that know Christ, and it's wonderful comfort even when things are very difficult. It's been a little difficult to pass a couple of months with this leg situation. Certainly, there's worse things, but it can be very discouraging at moments. But God was in our house, and we know, and we were encouraged, and we know a lot of people were praying for us and loved us too. That always helps, and that's the way we ought to be with others as well. If you have any questions afterwards, I'll be up front. Um, Enrico, our other elder here, who's up front this morning, will be up here afterwards. And, uh, and then our other elders will be circulating in the back if you have questions for them. We're going to have a brief business meeting in a moment, and I think a song before that. But let's pray as we uh, close this aspect. Father, we do thank you for your grace uh, today. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that God is in the boat and that we don't realize it sometimes. And this is an amazing unique little story that pretty much everybody knows, but we might not all know the real meaning of this. This was where they came to understand the ego I me, the I am who I am, Yahweh, the Lord, the Tetragrammaton. Bless, we pray, in what we've talked about this morning. Use it for your glory in spite of me. And um, may we be better servants in the boat, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.